0: Second Corinthians is a book unlike any other book in the New Testament. We are probably more familiar with First Corinthians because of its emphasis on congregational problems and Paul's response to some of the theological challenges that the church was facing. But Second Corinthians has a different emphasis altogether. When you open up your Bible to Second Corinthians, what you find is that Paul is defending his apostleship. He's on the verge of being sold out by the Corinthians as they have started to believe reports about others that he may not. Really be a genuine apostle. And so Paul writes to defend himself. If anybody should have known that Paul was a genuine bona fide apostle, it should have been the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were worked among you. He had proven himself. He had shown it and they should have believed. But not only that, 2 Corinthians is unique in the New Testament because in this letter we find some of Paul's most deep and intimate thoughts about himself and and his life that aren't found anywhere else. And all of the New Testament. It's in Second Corinthians that we learn that on one occasion Paul was so discouraged that he wanted to give up and quit life altogether, chapter one and verse eight. It's in Second Corinthians that we learn that while Paul often put up a tough exterior, he was terrified within, second Corinthians chapter seven and verse five. It's in this letter and nowhere else in the New Testament that we learn about his battle daily with anxiety. Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28. And it's in Second Corinthians and nowhere else in the New Testament that Paul mentions this thorn in the flesh, which bothered him so much that he begged God three times to remove it. And he was told no each time. Second Corinthians 12 and verse nine in Second Corinthians. Paul is reaching out to the Corinthians to say, turn back, receive me as a genuine apostle. Do the right things. But Paul's struggling. This letter is not just meant to be an autobiographical sketch of Paul's life. What we need to see more than we need to see Paul in Second Corinthians is the one who kept Paul afloat in the midst of all of his troubles, in the midst of all of his difficulties. Paul writes about God and says things about God in this letter that we know. But he emphasizes them in a way in Second Corinthians that we don't find emphasized in this way anywhere else throughout our Bibles. Statements you're familiar with, verses you know, but Paul writes them at a time in his life when he really needed to hear them. And maybe we need to hear them as well. One of the risks we run as Christians is emphasizing all of the things that we need to do in our ministry and service to God, but possibly failing to see all of the things that God does in his ministry and his service to us. The atheist says God is not there. The deist says God is there, but he doesn't care enough to be involved. But Christian theism, according to Francis Schaeffer, says he is there and he is not silent. What we find in Second Corinthians and what I want us to do this morning is to notice the ministry of God. We read our Bibles and we realize that God created the heavens and the earth. He began things in the beginning. And the New Testament says that he will end things and return to resurrect the dead and take us to be with him at home in heaven forever. But what is God doing right now? For you and for me, what is God's ministry and service toward us as we live from day to day? Paul tells us in Second Corinthians, many of the things that God does in his ministry and his service to us. And it's until we get this down and realize God's ministry toward us, our ministries toward him will never be all that they could be. And so maybe you're discouraged this morning and you're wondering if you can continue to press on, be impressed and allow Paul to reintroduce you to the God who loves you. And ever works towards your good. Maybe you can't put your finger on it. You're clothed. You're sheltered. On the outside, everything seems to be going well. But you know something just is not right. You're just off. You're just sort of in a funk or in a rut. Let Paul reintroduce you to the God who ministers to you even in that hour. Maybe you're not even a Christian. And in this current state, you don't believe that the God of heaven is worthy of your service and your submission. Paul says he is. If you have your Bible, let's go to Second Corinthians chapter one. I've got seven points this morning. And so I was talking fast a moment ago, but I'm going to be on like double speed now if we're going to get through all seven points. Seven points, seven aspects of God's ministry toward his people that we need in order to see God as he truly is. Number one, Paul said God is a merciful comforter. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who comforts us in all of our affliction. So that we may comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The first thing Paul says about God's ministry toward us is that he is a merciful comforter. Now, the first thing in verse three, blessed be the God and father. Paul says God is to be blessed. Why? Because he's the father of mercies and God of all comfort. God told Moses that he was a merciful God. Exodus 34 and verse six. Micah 7, 18 says that God delights in mercy. But what Paul says here is something totally different. Paul doesn't say in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3 that God is merciful. He says more. He says he's the father of mercies. What does that mean? When you and I read the Bible and we read that someone is the father of something, it means that that individual is the originator of whatever's being discussed. And so in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 21, we read that a man named Jubal is the father of musical instruments. Or John 8, 44, the devil is the father of lies. And 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3, when Paul says God is the father of mercies, it means that if any mercy will be extended, if any mercy will be enjoyed, it ultimately comes from God. He's the originator of mercy. He's the one that started being merciful before anybody else. But not just that. He's the God of all comfort. Would you underline these two statements first in verse three? He's the God of all comfort. And then in verse four, he comforts us in all of our affliction. It's as if Paul is saying for every human affliction, there's a heavenly comfort that can soothe the soul. And so second Thessalonians two and verse 16, Paul would write now to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God who gave us eternal comfort and good hope. May he direct you in every good way and in every good word and work. Paul says God is a merciful comforter. It's just who he is and what he does. We need this because as we stumble and fail and fall in this life, what we need to appreciate about God's ministry toward us is that we don't fall into the hands of a careless and capricious God. Paul says when that happens and it will, we fall into the hands of a God who longs and delights to comfort us. It's believed that the idea of comfort food, that word was introduced into American English in 1966 in what in a paper called the Palm Beach Post. And it was repopularized in the Washington Post in 1977. One psychology professor from the University of New York said, you know, comfort food is really not about the food. It's the soul's attempt to soothe itself through a macaroni and cheese self-induced coma says it's really not about the food we try to do with food. What we really need for our souls. And so macaroni and cheese, mashed potatoes, grits and ice cream are all described as comfort foods. But appreciate that Paul says when our hearts really need to be soothed, we don't need a fork. We need the heavenly father to embrace us. Isaiah 12 and verse one, he says, you were angry with me, but you've turned away from me in your anger so that you might comfort me. When the people of Israel come back from Babylonian captivity, hear the words from Isaiah that should be echoing in their ears. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord, Isaiah 40 and verse one. Jesus' ministry as is author and described as he who comforts those who mourn. Isaiah 61, one and two, the God we serve is a merciful comforter toward those who come to him. It means God's compassionate. It means God's interested. It means God cares about us. And Paul needed to know this in a time when he was put set apart from the Corinthians as they began to doubt him. He says, there's one person who hasn't given up on me, who hasn't quit me. And it's God. He's the father of mercies and he's the God of all comfort. Somebody says, well, sometimes my my soul feels swallowed by the problems of life. Have you ever felt like that? I'm overwhelmed with all of the things that are going on around me and within me. And I realize the Bible says a lot of things about comfort, but they really do seem to elude me. I don't feel comforted. I believe God. I believe the Bible. But there are occasions when I just don't feel this merciful comfort. And it may very well be that it's there, but we're looking in all the wrong places. How does God comfort us? Briefly before we move on to number two, the Bible says God comforts us through others. Look at 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 4. He comforts us in all of our affliction that we might be able to take that comfort and comfort any others who are afflicted with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God. Consider according to that verse, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 4, everything in your life that God has ever brought you through. He did it in part so that you one day could look back and see someone else in similar or even identical tribulation and take the same comfort that God has lavished on you and bring them through. How does God comfort? Through others. He comforts us in all of our affliction, but not just for our own good, so that we might be able to comfort others who are in any affliction with the same comfort we received. And so when you stood at the grave of a loved one and you said, I'm never going to be able to get over this, and you did, or at least you've gotten through it. He didn't just do it for your sake. He did it so one day you might see someone else standing over a grave, thinking the very same thing and say, you can when you lost your job, and you said, I'm undone. This is the end. And you bounce back and things improve. He didn't just bring you through for your sake. He did it so you might be able to one day help others. God comforts us through scriptures. Romans 15 and verse four. Paul says, whatever things are written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now, that passage is about the Old Testament. Think about the Psalms. Think about narratives that tell us about the life of Abraham and David. And Moses and people who walk with God, he comforts us through the scriptures. He comforts us through the good news. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 6, Paul says, God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. This idea that as Paul received good news, his heart was cheered. And so are our hearts. And the last way God comforts us is through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send you some translation have the comforter. John 14 and verse 18, John 14:18. John 14:26. He's called the comforter in second Corinthians twice in chapter one and verse 22. And in chapter five and verse five, he's called the earnest or the down payment. He's the comforter. Not that we can feel any warm and fuzzy thing within us. But there's this assurance that God has not abandoned me. God's with me. And that's a comforting feeling. A man by the name of Pliny, the elder, was a Roman stoic and a naturalist who lived in the first century. And he said, if there is a divine being that he is concerned and interested in human affairs is a most ridiculous notion. He couldn't be more mistaken. When your heart tries to lie to you about the God of all comfort, the father of mercies, just be be reminded that he cares. Your heart will say sometimes, well, you know what? God's abandoned me. But the very fact that he's called the God of all comfort says he's concerned. Cast all your cares on him because he cares about you. Your heart may try to deceive you and say, oh, God may be concerned, but he's only concerned about some of my troubles. But Paul won't let us get away with it. He says in all of our affliction, he comforts us. Whatever affliction we're going through, God's concerned. We may think, well, I'll find comfort elsewhere. He's the God of all comfort. If we will be comforted, it'll be through him. He's a God who refuses to mind his own business. Everything that's your problem becomes becomes his because he's concerned. And it's a part of his ministry. What does God do in his ministry toward us today, right now? He's a merciful comforter. Now, here's number two. He's the God that delivers. In chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says, He delivered us from so great a death or deadly peril. He does deliver. And we've set our hope on him that he will deliver us again. Notice in chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul says when he and his companions were in Asia, they were so overwhelmed with hardship that they despaired of life itself. They wanted to give up altogether. Verse 9, they had the sentence of death in themselves that they might learn not to trust in themselves, but in God who raises the dead. What's God's ministry toward us right now? What is God doing right this moment? He is the God of deliverance. This is one of the Old Testament's favorite ways of referring to God. When David overcame all of his enemies in 2 Samuel 22, he wrote a song to God. And in verse 2, he said about God, he's my strong tower, my fortress and my deliverer. It's what God does. He comes in and he rescues people out of things that they couldn't rescue themselves from. He's a God who ultimately rescues and delivers, who sees us in difficulty, who sees us forsaken. And he says, I'm here to lift you up. I'm here to help you. I'm here to bring you to safety. You know, Paul knew about this and Christians know about it. We realize that we were lost in sin and that God delivered us. Jesus said, this is my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. We know that one day there'll be an eternal deliverance. Paul says he will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me to his heavenly kingdom. Second Timothy 418. We realize we've been saved from sin. We'll be saved eternally. But what about right now? Paul says there's the threefold deliverance of God. Would you notice it in verse 10? He's delivered us from so great a death. That's in the past. He does deliver. And we've set our hope on him that he will deliver us again. It's just what God does. It's who he is. It's a part of his ministry. Paul knew this well. He had been saved from sin. Acts chapter 9. He was on his way to persecute Christians. And God said, I've got plans for you. And after he became a Christian, he was often persecuted. Think about his time in Philippi in Acts 16. Or in Thessalonica in chapter 17. Or the riot at Ephesus in Acts 19. Out of all of my persecutions, the Lord delivered me from them all. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 11. Paul had known that, but Paul could have gone back further in history beyond his own life. And so can we. When the world was drenched in wickedness, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6 and verse 8. And in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, when wickedness seemed to be overcoming those areas, God rescued Lot because God delivers. I read this week about an 80-year-old woman who was in Willoughby, Ohio. Her name is Kathleen. That's her last name, Adrienne Catalini. And she was stuck in a snowstorm in 2016. She had crashed her car, stuck in a ditch. She said she couldn't work this thing called the cell phone. And she just kept spinning her tires. And she just couldn't get out. And then a man, she never met him before. He just so happened to live in the area named Mr. Goodrich. Not only came and got her out, but he called the tow truck and let her stay in his house until things smoothed themselves out. When accidentally, the tow truck took her car and her house keys, he even let her stay the night at her house, at his house, until she could get things sorted out. When interviewed by the press, Goodrich said, listen, I just did what I believe anybody would do in the same situation, seeing this woman in need. They would help. They would rescue. They would deliver. I'm not sure Goodrich can speak for every person in the world, but I'm sure of this. What he did in that occasion is a small snippet into a window of what God always does. In our lives, as we spin our wheels and we find ourselves in ditches, sometimes self-made and self-inflicted, God says, I'm here to help you. I'm here to rescue you. Would you hold your hand in 2 Corinthians and go to Psalm 34? Hold your hand in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and notice what David says three times in this psalm about the deliverance of God. It's in Psalm 34 and verse 6. Psalm 34 and verse 6, David says, the poor man cried in his troubles. But you know what happens at the end of verse 6? God delivered him. From all of his troubles. Look at verse 17. The righteous stumble, they fall, they're in hardship. But the Lord delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of how many of them? David says, from them all. Don't you see that God is a God who longs to rescue? He's a God who longs to deliver. If you're not a Christian and you haven't obeyed the gospel, appreciate this reality. You'll never save yourself. Paul told a group of Jews in Acts 13 through him. That's through Jesus. We can be delivered from all the things that we could never be saved from under the law of Moses. Acts 13, 38 and 39. And if you are a Christian, even now. He's in our lives, rescuing us and saving us and delivering us this and the one before it should not be taken to mean that we won't ever go through hardship and difficulty because God's a God of comfort and God longs to deliver us. No, the more you read the Bible, the more when we face hard times, we shouldn't say, how could this happen? We realize that we're ultimately in good company and the way God often delivers, according to the Bible, is not from the fire, but through the fire. And so the three Hebrew boys could say in Babylon, our God is able to deliver us. But even if not, we won't bow because he'll go with us through it. Daniel 3, 17 and 18. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The fire won't kindle you. The floods won't overwhelm. Isaiah 43 and verse 2. Why? Because God has a job and a part of his ministry toward us is that he delivers. Now, here's number three. God's ministry involves him being a God who keeps his promises. Second Corinthians 1 and verse 20, Paul says in Christ. All of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. And it's through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. God's ministry involves him keeping his promises. They're ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Every one of God's promises. What does that mean? What Paul means here is this. When you read the Bible and you see God making promises toward us, you should be thinking about one thing. We should reason from Jesus forward. We should be saying in our lives, "Okay, whatever God has promised. Whatever God has said he's going to do, if I have any doubts or any questions, I need to look at what he's already done in Jesus. You read the Old Testament and you see promises made. Micah 5 and verse 2, he will be born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. He's going to raise one up from the lineage of David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, and he will sit on God's throne forever. He'll call his son out of Egypt, Hosea 11 and verse 1, and promise after promise. And along with those promises, centuries after centuries, and then finally he showed up and he came because God always keeps his promises and it's based on that that we can trust him for the future. Maybe you remember last year when a congressman from Missouri ended a prayer and he said amen and a woman. Now it was not just bizarre, but it was a mistaken idea altogether because the word amen in the Bible in the conclusion of prayers is not about gender. It's not about gender at all. What the word amen means in Hebrew in the old and Greek in the new. It means this one idea. I affirm. So be it. I agree. And Paul says in Second Corinthians, chapter one, and verse 20, God's ministry to us is in keeping his promises. And it's along with that, that we utter our amen to God. It is not just that we end our prayer saying amen is our way of saying in conclusion. It's our way of saying, God, we trust you in everything we petitioned you for. So be it, according to your will. Because we trust that you're faithful and you will keep your word. God has promised us eternal life. First, John two and verse twenty five. He's promised us life, a rich quality of life. Second, Timothy one and verse one. He's promised that he will come again. Second, Peter three and verse nine. God is not slow concerning his promises. Some men count it, but he's long suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We have all made promises to God and we've all failed him sometimes. Sometimes because we just are humans, sometimes because the flesh gave way and gave in, sometimes because we oversold what we were able to accomplish. But, you know, God has never done that. God has never overinvested. God has never asked us for a do over because his ministry toward us is I've made promises to you and I intend to keep every one of them. And he's doing so even now because God's ministry toward us involves God being a God you can count on. You can depend on him to keep his word. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. Numbers 23, 19 and hope of eternal life in which God who cannot lie. Listen, your Bible doesn't say that God won't lie. It says God can't just like you can't grow wings outside of your ribs and fly out of this building. It's to that same extent that God just cannot lie. It's antithetical to his nature. It's not who he is. He tells the truth and that's all he tells. And so as we live our lives in view of our ministry toward God, we should be thinking God's ministry toward me is that he always keeps his promises. Now, here's number four. God leads us to victory. Would you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and notice notice verse 14 and verse 15. He says, now, Christ, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. So that through us, the knowledge, the fragrance of his knowledge might be spread everywhere. Paul says, God always leads us in triumphal procession. I believe the King James says, thanks be to God, which always leads us to victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, because this is part of what God does for us. Now what Paul mentions in chapter 2, 14 and 15 would have been readily familiar to the Corinthians and maybe not so much to us. In the first century, when one army went in and conquered another, Once they defeated this nation, they would often gather up those individuals that were conquered. And once they came home, they would drag these captives and these slaves and these losers around their stadium and around their country to say, these are the people we've defeated in battle. These are the people we've conquered. And Paul takes that same imagery, that same image, and he says, that's what God's done with us. You can imagine the Corinthians reading that and saying, Paul, why would you boast about being a loser? Because Paul learned this lesson. That in Christ, that's the only way to really win. If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll be saved. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Don't you see, Paul is saying we have surrendered our lives willingly. We've become his captives and his slaves. And so by all means, we're glad that God marches us to victory as we're in this triumphal procession. As God says, "Okay, you all are my willing subjects. And Paul says in that we win the ultimate victory. You know why your car only has one steering wheel? It's because only one person can direct where we're going at a time. And the way God has wired the human heart, there is one steering wheel per heart and only one person can direct it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, but only if you let him only if you allow him to direct you in this triumphal procession and lead us to victory, because that's ultimately what he wants to do. He wants us to win in him, but we've got to surrender over our lives. At first, this is difficult because you want to call your own shots. You want to live your own way. And so do I. We've all drunk from the devil's cup of self-righteousness and pride. And we think we know best. Paul thought for a long time that he knew best. He knew what his life should be like and where it should go. And we have often thought the same. But the truth is, we have no idea what we're doing. John 15, five, he says, without me, you can do nothing. Order my steps according to your words. Psalm 119, 133. We really need guidance and more than we are often willing to admit And so Paul says, God's ministry toward me is to direct my path, to direct me in triumphal procession, to show me the way that I should go and how I should live. And I'm willing to let him do that. This passage means that there are some people whose lives on the outside seem to be put together. It seems like everything's right in their lives. But according to the Bible, they're building on a foundation of sand. And there are others whose lives appear to be in shambles who things seem to be coming apart for them. But according to this passage and others like it in the New Testament, what this means is they have lost and at the same time won the greatest victory. They appear to be captives and slaves, but they're the freest people in the world. And they're called Christians. In chapter three and verse 17, Paul would say where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty because we win as Jesus ultimately leads us in victory. Now, here's number five. The ministry of God toward us is that he completes us. Paul poses a question at the end of chapter two. Notice verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul is talking about his ministry there, his work as an apostle. Remember, he's begging the Corinthians to see things rightly, to receive him back as a genuine apostle. And he says, who's sufficient for these things? Who can do all of the things that me and my companions need to do and who who can accomplish this work? And the answer to that question in our own strength is absolutely no one. But the answer to the question in verse 16, and you might just draw an arrow from verse 16 down to chapter three and verse five, because that's where Paul answers the question. He says not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. What does that mean? It means that God made Paul enough. It was God who equipped Paul to do everything that he was able to accomplish. And it's the same God that will equip you and equip me. When we start to reason this way, we stop saying things like, well, I'm just not smart enough. We stop saying things like, I don't think I can do that. You can't and neither can I in our own strength and our own power. But what if God's working in us and through us? What if it's God's ministry to ultimately complete us? And this verse is easy enough to read and easy enough to absorb with the eyes. But it's a million times more difficult to absorb with the heart. Because if you know your own heart this morning, you know that we often depend on other people and other things to complete us, which we're never intended to. And we're often disappointed. We say to ourselves, if I could just get this job, I'd be fulfilled and complete. You know, if I could just get married, if I could just get the relationship I want, then I would finally be complete. You know, if I can get all my kids going in the right direction, then I could pat myself on the back and then I would finally have I'd be complete if my business could start to perform like it should. If I could lose this amount of weight, if I could do all of these things which aren't wrong in and of themselves, but they will never fulfill us, not ultimately, they can't. When Paul says God is our sufficiency, he doesn't just mean that God equipped him for his apostolic ministry and preaching, which is true, but he also means that God signed off on his life and he no longer looked to anything else or anyone else to tell him he was enough. Because God was. What do we look for for our enoughness? Whatever the answer to that question is, that is our religion. Whatever we look for to affirm us and tell us, you've arrived, you're successful. Paul says it's God's job to complete us, and it's our job to comply with God, to trust God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. It's this reason. Why Moses didn't need to rely on the eloquence and the training that he received in Egypt, but he could march in before Pharaoh because God says, I'm with you, Exodus 4, 10 through 12. It's for this reason, that the apostles didn't need to go to Jerusalem for rabbinical training, to stand before the Sanhedrin, because God had been with them, Acts 4 and verse 13. It's this point that kept Paul from keeping all of his Judaic accomplishments in a portfolio when he went from town to town, none of that mattered. The only thing that mattered was he had Christ. And he found his sufficiency in Christ, and we will too. Imposter syndrome is a real thing. Imposter syndrome says, I don't know if people really know the real me. I mean, I look like I have it together on the outside, but I think they're going to find me out. I'm not as smart or intelligent. I don't have as much self-confidence as other people think I have. I'm really just winging it. And I think one day people are going to find me out. The Bible says you've already been found out, and so have I. You don't have it together. You can't complete yourself. You're not able to do it on your own. But the good news for us if we're Christians is we don't try because our sufficiency comes from God. It's his job to complete us. There are supposed to be holes and empty spaces in our lives. And we can pour all of this world's resources into those holes and they won't fill them because those spots are reserved for God and God alone. Now, here's number six. God strengthens the weak. Second Corinthians 12. Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh and he begged God three times. And God told him no, verse eight. And Jesus responds in verse nine, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. One of God's things that he does right now in our lives is that he strengthens the weak. It's what God longs to do. You say, I feel weak this morning. What should I do? You should rejoice because you are in the perfect condition to be helped by Almighty God. He doesn't help the strong. People that think that they have it all together, that they can figure it out on their own. God just overlooks them and lets them come to their own demise so that then they can come to the realization that they need his help. But to the weak person. To the person that's struggling to put the pieces together, God says, I'm here for people just like you. It was that invitation when Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and a heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He longs to help weak people is what he does. And when Paul figured that out, Paul says, well, now I boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. If God works with the weak, I'll take it. Listen, Paul didn't get his thorn in the flesh removed, but there is something better than a thorn free life. It's the Christ empowered life. Which would you choose? Honestly, which one would you choose? Would you choose to have every weakness in your life at this moment removed? Or would you choose to retain those weaknesses if it meant that God's presence stuck with you and he was still going to work in you? We know which one we should choose, but the world often says trust in power, trust in human might. And Paul says, I won't. Scholars and commentators have fussed and debated for centuries. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Some people say maybe Paul had bad eyesight. Maybe he thought back to the persecution and the stoning of Stephen and all of those things that he did. And he wanted those things to be wiped from his memory. The truth is, nobody knows. And it just may be the case that the Holy Spirit leaves this one ambiguous on purpose. Suppose God told us what Paul's weakness was. Then we might say, if we couldn't relate, well, God's strong to our weak people like that. Or God's strong to weak people that face this. But God just leaves it open. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Which weakness? All of them. He doesn't tell us. Because wherever we find ourselves weak in him, we can truly be strong. Now, here's the seventh and final one concerning God's ministry toward us is that he's a God of love and peace. Paul ends the letter with these words in verse 11. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree among yourselves, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. You know, Paul often begins his books by speaking of God's grace and peace. And he does that in Second Corinthians in chapter one, and verse two. But he ends this one speaking of God's love and of God's peace ever being with the Corinthians. As Paul wrote this book, he needed God's love and God's peace. The Corinthians had seemed to abandon him. His life was in its greatest season of turmoil. Paul speaks about his hardships in this letter, unlike he does anywhere else. And he really needed God's peace. He's the same man who wrote in Second Thessalonians 316. God give you peace by all means and in any way. He says, God will give it to you. He spoke of God's love. God is love. First John four and verse eight. And that's God's ministry toward us in our world. That's built so much on likes. Maybe we need something stronger. Because we were ultimately made for love. God's ministry toward us is to love us, to fully embrace us and to ultimately give us a peace that this world can never take. It's what God does. Maybe we think about our lives and we say there's so much turmoil within my heart, my own mind. I can't find peace and rest. We look on the news and we see all of the things going on. There was an article put out this morning by the New York Times and they entitled it Fragile Peace. And they started talking about some other countries that Russia may attempt to eventually invade. And the world is constantly saying there's something to be afraid of. There's something to rob you of your peace. And Paul says God's ministry. One of the things that God does, one of the jobs that God has for you and for me is to say, don't let them terrify you. It will be all right. I love you doesn't matter what else is going on in the world. I see you. I'm concerned about you. I care about you. And I will see you through to the end because God always finishes what he starts. And that's a part of his ministry. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, the Corinthians won't receive me as they should. But God will never abandon me, though he should. In this letter, we find God described, the God that we ultimately need to embrace us. We have to serve and obey God. Make no mistake about that. But we will find ourselves exhausted, overwhelmed, burdened and on the verge of ultimately quitting. If we only think about our ministry toward God and if we never pause to consider that God also has a ministry toward us, a ministry of comfort, a ministry of mercy. A ministry that says, I forgive, I lead you in victory, and I'm the one, the only one, who can ultimately complete your life. Maybe you're not a Christian. Let God do for you what you won't be able to do yourself. Let him save you. It's what he does. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Turn and repent of your sins and be immersed in water to have your sins forgiven. Acts 2 and verse 38 says, not only will your sins be forgiven... But the Holy Spirit will take up residence in your life and in your heart and you'll be added to his church. Acts chapter two and verse forty seven. Maybe in one sermon we haven't convinced you. But if you are interested, we'd love to sit down and study with you to teach you the New Testament way, the ultimate way of Jesus Christ. This lesson has been primarily for Christians, though, to say to God's people, do not be discouraged and overwhelmed. And if you are, if you are weak, if you are overwhelmed, if you are discouraged, It's God's job. It's God's ministry to swallow up that hardship. What hardship? All of it. He's the God of all comfort and he's willing to comfort you in all of your affliction. Be encouraged that we have a God that is concerned about us, a God who's involved in our lives right now and a God who longs for us to be in eternity with him. It's our custom to sing a song of invitation at the end of this lesson to allow individuals to respond who need to. If you need to allow God to minister to you this morning through his people, as we stand and sing this song, let us do so. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.